Anyhow, well, this, this weekend my family and I went up to the upstate and uh, to see some grandparents. When we go up there, we have access to a pool. And the funny thing about living in the low country is, uh, you know, we have access to the beach very easily, the lake. Uh, but you know, we don't have a lot of pool access. And uh, so if you have a pool or have access to a pool, we'd love to come join you one, one day. Uh, but, but so little John David is a two-and-a-half-year-old. He's really familiar with the lake. He's familiar with the beach, really familiar with the beach. But he's not so familiar with the pool. Like he doesn't quite understand that you can't just walk up to the pool and stick your foot in, right? Or you'll, you'll go three feet down into it. And so he's still learning that. And, and a few months ago, he kind of found out the hard way. We were in a pool. We were sitting on the steps there in the pool. And he just started walking down. He slipped and he fell. Even though he had water wings on, he kind of went under the water a little bit. And he got, uh, and he got uh, water in his nose. And the day before we went to the pool, I was talking to him. And I said, uh, you, you ready to go to the pool tomorrow? And he said, he said, no, it's scary. And I said, what's scary about it? He said, oh, and he kind of gibbers when he talks, but he can make out some words. He says, well, I'm going to get water up my nose. <laughs> and I was like, you get water up your nose? Yeah, I get water up my nose. So when we <laughs> went back to the pool, we kind of slowly had to coax him into the pool. And then, and then, because he knew that he had had a bad experience. And so after a few minutes, you know, he, after he told me he was scary over and over again, uh, he he kind of showed more courage, and he and he realized we weren't going to let him, you know, uh, we want to let him drown. And one of his favorite games to play, he likes to fill up the tub, and he likes to throw things in the tub and see if they'll sink or float. And he'll say, "Sink or float." And so I'll tell him, "You're not going to sink. You're going to float." <laughs> you know. Uh, and so, the, but the more uh, he was in it, the more courage he showed. And as we today finish up our series going through Nehemiah, we're looking at a passage today where Nehemiah had to show courage in some difficult leadership decisions. And as we continue to rebuild our church, rebuild our lives as we emerge from the pandemic, there are going to be decisions that we face where we may be fearful, but we must muster up the courage to deal with them. We're going to be in Nehemiah 13, but beginning I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. says, now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Father in heaven, as we continue to worship you today, we do thank you that, uh, that you are there for us, that you give us that the streams of living water that we just sung about, that you refresh us, that your burden is light, it's not heavy. And that you do, you, do give, you do give that refreshing water to those who need it. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of being able to read 
all that you used Nehemiah to do as you rebuilt Jerusalem. So in this final sermon today, Father, I, I pray that you would show us what we could have courage to do in our own lives. When we're faced with difficult decisions, and we know that we can be successful with showing courage because of what Jesus has done for us in our lives. So Lord, I pray that my words are yours today, that you speak through me with your spirit, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to give you three traits of courageous leadership. Three traits of courageous leadership. And we've established before that in some facets of our life, we're all leaders. We might just be leaders to our family. We might just be leaders to our grandchildren or, or our nieces or nephews. But we are leaders. People are watching us. And so we, we all have areas of the facets of life where we are leaders. And so three traits of courageous leadership. Number one, it takes courage to confront. It takes courage to confront. Verse 4 says that Eliashib the priest who was over the chambers of the house of God was related to this man named Tobiah. Now, if you've been with us and, and read through this and remember some of these sermons, you remember this man, Tobiah. We've talked about Tobiah before. Chapter 4, Tobiah publicly opposed Nehemiah's vision to rebuild the wall. He also joined those who ridiculed Nehemiah, trying to intimidate the builders of the wall. In chapter 6, Tobiah even went as far as participating in a conspiracy to frighten Nehemiah and lead him into sin so they could have a reason to disgrace him. And later on after that, Tobiah sent direct letters to Nehemiah to, and continued threatening him. So right from the beginning here, we see this, this priest who's related to Tobiah. It makes us say, wait a second, I know this man. So Tobiah had a history of causing issues with the people of God. He had his own agenda, and now that Nehemiah was away to report back to the king of Persia, Tobiah started taking advantage of the vacuum in leadership. Now, the priest who was over the chambers of the temple was somehow related to Tobiah, and somehow Tobiah convinced him to let him move in to those posh accommodations, actually live in the temple chambers where they kept all the equipment for sacrifice and worship. This, of course, was inappropriate. It was way off limits, and it was against the law. But look what he did in verse 5. He went ahead, and he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes and everything which were given by commandments and the contributions for the priests. This is the room where they stored the elements for sacrifice, which was worship. Now, we don't have a room like this in the sanctuary. We don't have a temple. But it would be, it would be a situ situation where maybe if our baptistry or something or, 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 or where we kept the Lord's Supper, maybe, maybe it was the nicest room in the city for some reason. And, you know, we're not maybe doing what we should be doing anymore with worship. And so Tobiah somehow manipulated his way into living in that facility. Now, only, only the priests could even enter this portion of the temple. But Tobiah somehow used his power, his, his privilege, whatever it was, to take advantage of a situation because clearly Tobiah felt that God's law didn't apply to him. Verse 6, now while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, 
For I went, he says that he went to be with the king of Babylon, to the king. After some time I asked leave, and I, and I came to Jerusalem, verse 7, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, Nehemiah, so, so to speak, was, was checking in with his boss. Remember, he was a cupbearer for the king for many years. The king allowed him to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild everything. And after some time of, doing, of committing back to the Lord, of really doing a lot of restoration and rebuilding, he went back and reported to the king. And, and scholars estimate he was gone about 10 to 12 years. So about 10 to 12 years has passed. And if you think about 10 to 12 years ago, it's 2009, 2011. You know, a lot can change in 10 to 12 years. Think about what, what has changed in our country since 2009, 2010. We've had landmark uh, uh, Supreme Court cases that have changed a lot of fabric of our lives. A lot of things have changed. The culture has changed tremendously. How many of you had uh, smartphones in 2009? Raise your hand. Probably not many of you did. Right? I think I just now got one, maybe. Maybe, maybe 2010 or so, I got one. The world has changed, can change a lot in 10 to 12 years. And this is what Nehemiah sees. He comes back. Maybe he's got a little more gray in his beard. Maybe his hair is longer. I don't know. I looked a lot different 12 years ago than I do today. But a lot can change in this time period. And this is what he comes back to. Verse 8. And I was very angry. <laughs> and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now let's not forget, Tobiah had been living here maybe for a decade or longer. That doesn't matter to Nehemiah. He comes back. He's going to say, you know, listen, I know you've been living here, but this is kind of wrong. And so we'll give you 60 days to get out, and we'll, we'll get you a moving company, and, and we'll take your time. No, he just gets in there and throws his junk out. Why? Because he should. He's confronting the sin, and he just takes care of it. He doesn't tiptoe around the issue. He says, this is wrong, and you're moving out. This was his life. Now, furthermore, Tobiah wasn't even Jewish. He was an Ammonite. And he was living in the temple. So Nehemiah, as governor of Judea, previous governor, immediately cleansed the situation. This reminds me of Jesus doing the same. When he went to the temple and he saw the people taking advantage of the sacrificial system, he just, he just kicked the people out. The ritual purity of the temple grounds was important because it, it represented the holiness and the purity of God. So this was a direct affront, a direct attack on God's character and name. And Nehemiah had the courage to confront the sin. Now, we don't worship in a temple. Our New Testament worship is different. But we do exist in a community of believers. And very rarely would we have a church member behave as brazen as Tobiah did, although it has, has happened and in the other past churches, I have had church members who did some very brazen and, and, and illegal things. Not here, praise the Lord. But if that did happen, we would need to have the courage to confront them. Tobiah was an unbeliever, living, literally living in the house of God, who clearly had no intention of worshiping God or putting himself under the authority of God. But typically in our community, it won't be that serious we'll have maybe believing friends who are just struggling they're in patterns of sin they're just struggling and that's where we need to have the courage 
to come alongside them, pray for them, help them without coming across as judgmental necessarily, without coming across as we're mad at them, like we're shaking our finger at them. We need to have the courage to confront them. It may mean an awkward conversation, but we should care more about their holiness and God's reputation than we really should care about hurting their feelings. It takes courage to confront. That's why a lot of people don't do it. It takes courage to confront. Secondly, it takes courage to correct. It takes courage to correct. Now, confronting is one thing. Telling somebody, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this or you're not going to do this. But then to put in measures to correct is an additional step. You know, anybody can tell someone they're wrong, but correcting it is different. Look at verse 10. Also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Now, the descendants of the tribe of Levi, if you know Old Testament history, they had no land inheritance. Their inheritance was, was the Lord. It was the work of the Lord, the priesthood. So, in fact, in the preceding passage, the, the people had just committed, this was 10 to 12 years earlier, but they had just committed, as we learned last week, to take care of the people of God, the, the Levites and the priests. They had committed to this because God commanded them to be fed with the portions of the sacrifices. That, that literally, they worked and they were fed by the work of the Lord. Not unlike full-time pastors nowadays, you know. I'm fed because people give to the church. That's literally why. Same thing with the Levites. But when Tobiah moved in, he not only neglected the house of God, he neglected the servants of God. Look at verse 11. So I confronted, Nehemiah says, the officials. And I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And there's no answer given here. Because they know. Answer. It's kind of like catch a child. I have four, so this happens. It's a child who's doing something they shouldn't do, and I walk in and I say, "Now, why is your room looking like this?" Oh, there's no good answer. Why is the house of God forsaken? They know it's wrong, but there's no good explanation. You know why there's no good explanation? Because there's no good explanation. That's why it's wrong. What did he do? So I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and oil into the storehouses. Nehemiah asks a question that no one wants to answer, and then he starts to correct the situation. Verse 13, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Why did he put these people in place, in charge? Because he was, they were considered reliable. Nehemiah is just looking for some reliable believers. Aren't we looking for reliable people in life? We are, aren't we? He's just looking for someone he can trust. He's just looking for someone that can do what God has said, what God has commanded. And that's what he does. He, he doesn't probably even know these people. He's been gone for over a decade. But he's heard that this man here and this person here and this man here are reliable. So he's just trusting that he can trust 
them. And then he prays, verse 14, Remember me, O my God, according to concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for this service. And God answers this prayer. You know how we know? Because we're reading about it. God included this in Scripture. Now, Nehemiah's ultimate goal is not for him. It's not for his glory. It's for God's glory and for the house of God to be glorified. But he still saw more corruption. Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. That means they were doing work on the Sabbath, which is also against the law of God. Bringing in heaps of grain, loading them up on donkeys, bringing in wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Once again, doing work on the Sabbath, trying to make money on the Lord's day when God had said, you will not do it this day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians, who aren't even Jewish, also lived in the city. They brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. This is what happens when we compromise our values. When we compromise what God has said is right. The culture, with them it was the Tyrians, the culture creeps into the church. It says, oh, we can do this. It's fine. Oh, it's no big deal. I don't believe what that Bible says. That's old, old stuff. We're progressive. We, we've got past all that. It doesn't matter. If you look how much money you can make. Working on the Sabbath was very clearly sin because it was breaking, as you know, one of the Ten Commandments. And there's really three reasons why keeping the Sabbath was essential. Number one, God commanded it. That's all you need to know. But secondly, keeping the Sabbath demonstrates one's faith in God. It was the best sure way you could demonstrate one's faith in God. Now, now Chick-fil-A, as you well know, we're not open on Sundays. And every Sunday after church, I, I go, and this is why we go to another place every week on Sunday, because Chick-fil-A is closed. And sometimes I wish, gosh, I wish Chick-fil-A was open today. But they're never going to do it. Because they make, because God, I think, blesses them. They make much more money on six days a week than all other fast food places would make open 24-7 on seven days a week. Now, we can go into a whole case study why that's the case, maybe because you can't get it on a certain day. But that is not a good business model. There's no one that would say that is a good business model to be closed one day. Nobody would ever say it would work out that way. But they do, and it works. And I remember in college, I took a class in small business management at USC, and we had one of the owner-operators from Chick-fil-A come and talk, and uh, I actually knew him. I grew up with him, his son, and uh, he was talking about being closed on Sundays, and one of the students raised his hand and said, I think you should keep your religious beliefs out of your business or something like that, you know. And the owner-operator said, I I'm Jewish. <laughs> I, I don't even share the same religious beliefs as Truett Cathy. He said, but I know that this works. And he says, and I enjoy every Sunday with my family when I don't have to go into work. And he wasn't even a Christian. It demonstrates one's faith in God because we're, we're saying, God, it doesn't make logical sense to us if we, if, we keep, if we listen to your word, in this case, obeying the Sabbath. It doesn't make logical sense that we, that we don't change our values. But I'm going to trust, Lord, that you will bless it and that you know what is best for my life. 
That's what obeying God does. It, it, it shows us that we trust God's ways, even when it may not make logical sense, even when the world's telling us that we don't need to do it. And third, it's a celebration. Keeping the Sabbath was a celebration of rest, a celebration of freedom and deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Now, we don't have the Sabbath anymore. We're not, we're not beholden to it. But the principle's still there, and many times on Sundays we, we, we view this. My family, we try, to, we try to use Saturday as our Sabbath, because Sunday is kind of a work day. Right? We just try to not do some things. I had a, a friend, I do have a friend of mine that's Jewish, and I wrote him a, an email message a few months ago and asked him to look at something for me. And he said, it was Friday afternoon, and he said, you know what, I'll get back with you after the Sabbath. Just that's you know that's what he did. It's just part of his life. And he time to rest with his family and worship God. It was a non-negotiable. And when Nehemiah comes back from his visit with the king, he wastes no time reforming. And then what he does next in verse 17, he goes straight to the leadership who was in charge while he left. Verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the sabbath day then he gives him a history lesson verse 18 remember your fathers acted in this way and did not our god bring all this disaster on us and on this city now you're bringing more wrath on israel by profaning the sabbath he says the reason we are in exile the reason we are in this situation, we are under the rule of a foreign king, is because we broke God's law. This is the consequence of breaking God's law. We are in this Jerusalem under this, this foreign king because we wouldn't obey the Lord. That's why we're here. But now you're doing it again. Why are you doing it? When there is an organization system-wide problem, it starts with the leadership. This is what Nehemiah does. The nobles were in charge. They were allowing it to happen. Nehemiah reminds them that it was sinful and that it will lead to more heartache in the future if not stopped. You know, when my children are doing bad things, I don't try to tell them to quit just so I can be mean dad. Just so I can tell them I know better than you. I know that if you don't curb it, it's going to lead to heartache in the future. It's going to lead to problems in the future because God has told us this. So Nehemiah, again, went right to correcting the problem. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares, they lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. I can see it right now. Close the doors. We're not taking any more commerce. But Nehemiah, I, I got a delivery coming in. No, it's the Sabbath. But Nehemiah, I, 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 this, my lifehood depends on this. No, it's the Sabbath. But Nehemiah, I can just imagine the panic now. All these merchants. Nope, close the doors. We're listening to the Lord's command. So the merchants just waited outside. Well, it's 24 hours. Verse 21, and I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. He says, next time, don't even come until the day is over. Don't just sit out there. 
From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. <laughs> Verse 22, then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And he prays to the Lord again and says this, remember this also in my favor, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. It takes courage to correct because you're going to have people, they don't care what God's word says. They're still going to find a problem with it. They're still going to complain. They're still going to moan. And Nehemiah had the courage to not only confront but to correct. And finally, number three, the most important one, I think, it takes courage to change. It takes courage to change. We can confront. We can correct. But to really change, to where there doesn't have to be confrontation again, where there doesn't have to be correction again, takes courage. Verse 23, in those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, remember, if you were here last week, they had just made a covenant not to intermarry anymore, not to bring the foreign faiths into the community of faith. They had just made this commitment, and 10 years later, they went back to marrying women of other faith that brought other beliefs into the people of God. Verse 24, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Again, it's been 10 to 12 years. So you got these 10, 11-year-old children. Half, when their, their mother or father worships this God and this culture. And the other mother or father is Jewish. And they don't even speak the language anymore. If your child's not speaking the language, they've probably intermarried. That's the first clue, right, for the, for the Jewish people. So they lose the traditions, the values that they would have had. And look what Nehemiah does in verse 25. I would not, this is not something I would say you should do, but it worked for them, for him, and it was legal. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Talking about the children now, okay? This is not a Bible verse you want to put on your uh, mirror, your bathroom mirror or anything, or put it on a coffee mug. Now remember, Nehemiah was the governor. So he was a political leader. He wasn't a priestly leader. He, he was the political leader. So this was not just a crime against God. This was a crime against the country. So he viewed these crimes as not only spiritual but governmental as well. And so he's enacting corporal punishment on these children. And then he spoke to the parents. To the parents, he said, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons and you sh or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then he gives another history lesson, verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, even him, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? He says the downfall of Solomon, which was the downfall of the Jewish nation, was because Solomon brought women in of other faith and diluted the faith of the people. And they started believing other things, lies about God and half-truths and false religions. It wasn't the women necessarily that created it. It was their belief system that they believed. 
Solomon took it in, merged it with the belief system that he was supposed to have. Scripture blames Solomon's appetite and his compromising for unbelieving women as his downfall, and it was the downfall of the nation. Verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Remember, Sanballat was also a bad guy. Therefore, I chased him from me. Another guy that was causing problems. And Nehemiah removed him. And then he prays again. Remember them, oh my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood in the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. Then I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and for God. It wasn't selfishness. It was a zeal for God's name to be not profaned. He had a, a healthy fear of God and not of man. That we would have a fear of God and not of man. That we would care more about what God thinks about our lives than our neighbor thinks about our lives. Or the person across the street thinks about our lives. It takes courage to change. You know the syndicated radio uh, personality, Paul Harvey, you've heard of him. He tells a story. I'm not going to be able to tell it as good as he did. But he says, one summer morning, a man named Ray Blankenship was preparing his breakfast. And he gazed out of his window and he saw a small girl being swept along in the rain-flooded drainage ditch beside his home in Ohio. Blankenship knew that further downstream, the ditch disappeared and became a roar underneath the road and then emptied into the main culvert. So Ray dashed out of the door and raced along the ditch, trying to get ahead of the child who was foundering in the water. And he hurled himself into the deep churning water and he surfaced and was able to grab the child's arm and they tumbled end over end and within about three feet of the culvert Ray's free hand felt something possibly a rock protruding from one bank and he clung desperately to it but the tremendous force of the water tried to tear him and the child away and he thought to himself if I can just hang on until help comes he thought and he did and by the time the fire department rescuers arrived, he had pulled the girl to safety, and both were treated for shock. On April 12, 1989, Ray Blankenship was awarded the Coast Guard's Silver Life-Saving Medal, and the award was fitting because one detail was left out of this story, that Ray Blankenship could not swim. Could not swim. That is courage. When you see a situation that you know you can help, and you know it is not in your power to be successful, but you know it's the right thing to do, and you know that God might be with you, that He would be with you. What a testimony to courage when something is looks hard is hard, is difficult. But you know you're not the one that's going to provide your safety. God is going to provide your safety. On your bulletin, sermon notes, you have, just like last week at the bottom, today I want to commit to something today. 
Is there something you need to commit to today? Is there some, some, something in your life where you need God to give you courage, not for your glory, but for his glory or the betterment of him or the betterment of someone in your life? You know, God loves us so much he sent his son to die for us. We broke God's law. We put a barrier between us and God. Jesus Christ, through his death, his work on the cross, through his resurrection, he has is, he is made a way where there is no way. The Bible says that when you know Jesus, not only are you saved, that your relationship with God is made right, but also, also you've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us, leads us not into temptation. It, it delivers us from evil. And it gives us the courage to do things that only we can do. Because God has put us at the right place at the right time. But it takes a step of faith. Today, as we close our time, what do you need the courage to do today? God will give you the courage. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we, we do thank you for giving us that courage that we need so often in life. We see situations that are difficult, and we jump into rivers without even being able to swim, knowing that the act you've called us to is more important than our own lives, more important than our own selves. Ray Blankenship's a hero because he acted in the moment, and he put himself second. Father, you don't call all of us to do heroic things like that. But there might be a time where you've called us to do something difficult, something that takes courage for your name and your glory. And we pray that we would be able to do that by your power. Father, if there's one in here today that's never placed their faith in you, that they would do so today, they would receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And those of us, Lord, that need to be courageous, that today we would commit We'd be courageous in an area of our life, and you would give us the power to be successful. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.